Titus? Why Titus? And answer that question. Why study Titus? I believe this book will be a tremendous help to us this quarter. But I want to give you specific reasons tonight as to why we want to study this book. And this this book, the priorities it has, the themes that it has, it coincides in a lot of ways with my heart for this ministry as a whole and in general, not just studying the book of Titus, but why we even exist. Some of the priorities found in Titus coincide with my heart for why we even do college ministry or why you should be here at Grace on Campus or at Grace Community Church. Why we need to start this book even coincide with areas that you need to grow in your Christian life right now. So whether you have a quarter left and you're already kind of checked out, or you have three years left, um, this book, and with the things that we will study this quarter, by God's grace, will be a lifetime of fruit for your Christian life. Our time tonight by reading the book of Titus in its entirety. Turn to heaven already to Titus. God, by the Apostle Paul, writes this to us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised for the ages of the end. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put up what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. If anyone is above approach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but a spittle, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be willing to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy buttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, 
older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say to us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrel, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with it. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter Do your best to, spend, to speed Zenos the lawyer and Paulus on our way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all.
Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for the book of Titus. God, we ask that we our minds, soften our hearts. Help us to see your great work of salvation in this book. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see how the faith you've given us leads to changed lives that adorn your doctrine. Lord, we ask your help in the study of this word of you. A study that bears in a lifetime of you. We ask you blessing in your son's name. The 1,000 word essay. Double space. Times New Roman. It's four pages, give or take. That's if you're not cheating by making your punctuation really big or widening the margins slightly like you did in high school. You may not have as well. Persuasive essay is a favorite. Or not, because you actually have to have an opinion about something, right? Persuasive essay. So whether it's your grumpy old high school teacher in English class or your classics professor in your GED, you have to convince them, you have to persuade them that Beowulf is not the greatest literary work ever. That it is. Or that the formation of Greek villas had a vast impact on the language of the ethics. Or if you're on the other side of campus, maybe it's the situational ethics of clinical trials in the context of regional epidemiology. Or why multi-client contracts must include liability insurance for the purpose of public welfare in private projects, not public projects. To be honest, though, I'm not sure that I've ever written a thousand-word essay, or that maybe even you've ever written a thousand-word essay, that you would still stand behind right now. Can you think of one of your 1,000-word essays and tell me the compelling arguments you presented in four pages, double space times New Roman? A thousand words just isn't a lot, right? It's not enough time. You don't get the night before. It's not enough words. Forget English as you're writing it. It's usually not enough words in a thousand word essay to write a compelling, well grounded, well researched, well reasoned argument. At least that's how we usually treat the problem. A thousand words is chunk change, really. Besides, it's just for a grade, right? What would you write if you had a thousand words to answer the question, how should we live life? What is the Christian life all about? Or alternatively, how do you stay Christian in med school? How do you stay Christian in college? What are the priorities for someone who is relocating after college for an engineering job to a place with no obvious great church? What should the top priorities in the Christian life be for a college student? How should we live the Christian life with a thousand words? What would you say? Perhaps you would focus on right doctrine or convictions like you are in small or discernment or stewardship or handling your emotions or love. And you wouldn't be wrong. But what does God's word have to say in the book of Titus? The book of Titus, believe it or not, is 
900 words. It's 900 words. 100 words to spare. In Greek, it's 659 words. You can read it in about six minutes, like we just did. This short book is a handbook on life. It's God's manual through the Apostle Paul on the Christian life. Life in the church and the life of the church in the world. Life in Christian community and life in the Christian life in your local community. Life in God's house and life in the front yard of God's house. Titus is full of core gospel truth in one section, and in the next section it's full of practical theology, and it's full of wisdom for me and for you of how, chapter 2 verse 10 says, that we as Christians should adorn the doctrine of God. How the way we live should illustrate or beautify or embellish the truth that we believe in our hearts and our minds of how our lives should project or display or amplify or three-dimensionalize the truth of God's word. In a world where progressive thinking is put into the ivory towers of society, there's a constant call on your notifications on your phone for, for change and change and change and reform to the point that it has become a cacophony of background noise. Truth as old as Titus seems so small in this kind of world. But Titus is a book that's as timeless as it is tiny. Titus speaks to the churches priorities and problems and prerogatives to the churches on the island of Crete in Paul's day and to our church and to our souls today. How should we live? How should we live? Titus calls out, live like the gospel makes a difference in your life. Adorn the doctrine of God. Beautify the doctrine of God. Embellish the doctrine of God. Make the doctrine of God look good. And so in less than a thousand words, Titus will persuade us to live in this way. How the grace of God saves us, but how the grace of God also transforms our lives. How we as the church are to uphold right doctrine about God, but how we in our lives also are to adorn the doctrine of God. So tonight let's look at five reasons why I believe we need to study Titus. Five reasons why we need to study Titus. These reasons are why I believe this short book is what God would have for us this quarter. Again, whether you have one quarter left or you have three years and one quarter left in your college experience, I believe this book will bear much fruit. <laughs> Reason number one is that we need to refresh ourselves in the gospel. We need to refresh ourselves in the gospel. Titus is filled with rich gospel truth. And I believe our study in the book of Titus this quarter will allow us to be deeply refreshed in gospel truth. I believe in this season it's been so easy to focus on 
important but peripheral matters. Submission to government, politics, race issues about how God is sovereign in the pandemic, about how to deal with disappointment or loneliness, the intersection of faith and single dose efficacy, the intersection of faith in the digital workplace, the, the intersection of faith in cryptocurrency, the intersection of faith in you name it. The point is we've been so focused in this season on the intersections that we've been losing our, our sharpness, our acuity as to faith itself, gospel truth itself. We've been so focused on doing the right thing in every situation, the right way, thinking rightly about all the urgent things and the headlines and all the social movements that I know I at times, and I know you probably have too, you've not pondered the gospel enough or at all. We've not treasured the saving work of Jesus in this season. We've put the truth that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners into a box and put it in the corner until the storm passes. But the storms keep coming and coming. They just keep coming. And so while we've put, our, put these things that are important, admittedly, we put our attention on them, I believe we would do well in these next nine weeks to just focus and drink deeply from gospel waters. And Titus will help us to do that. Titus looks at the gospel from several different perspectives of time. He looks back at the gospel, 1 verse 2, at the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul looks back at gospel truth, 2 verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul looks through gospel lenses, also forward in time. He looks at 2 verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then twice in this short book, beginning and end, he says, the hope of eternal life, what we look forward to with great confidence and certainty. The anticipation of meeting with Jesus forever. And Paul looks at the gospel now, how the gospel should affect our lives now, currently, how we can practice now our common faith of how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 2.14 In time, the grace of God is not only the undeserved favor of Almighty God. The grace of God in Titus compels, it acts, it moves. This letter so very shamelessly and unapologetically links faith and works. Salvation and a life of good deeds. God-given faith resulting in a life that demonstrates and displays that faith, though. God, by his infinite and condescending grace, quickens our hearts of stone and the hearts of flesh in salvation, but God, Titus says, by his grace, also enlivens our hearts to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine. 
in a way that 2 verse 10 adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. So that we are like those who, 1 verse 16, profess to know God but deny him by our works. So that we are, 314, unfruitful. The grace of God, Paul says, 2 verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Titus is grace and faith, but it's good deeds. With Titus, we will ponder the gospel of Jesus Christ again. And Titus makes no mistake. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. Listen to 3, 5 through 7 again. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus is pure gospel. And we need to study this letter because we need it this quarter to refresh our souls in the gospel. Number two, reason why we said Titus is we need to reinvigorate our love for the local church. We need to reinvigorate our love for the local church. There has perhaps in your life, I know in mine, it's true, never been a time where Christians feel like they're more on their own. Have unique convictions, takes on what you should or shouldn't do in this season. So whether it's on purpose or in, in you're sort of distancing yourself from the church, or it's by circumstance and the choices you've made in the season, put it this way, there's likely a strange sense of detachment you have from the local church, a spiritual independence that you didn't even know you were capable of that has come out of the season. It's maybe an increasing headspace for you that not being in fellowship is somehow more sustainable than the original thought. In the rush to respect other people's positions and consider one another in love and stay safe and probably honor your parents in some way, you have lost in some degree your wonder, your respect, your love for the local church. You've lost sight of the purpose of the church. You've forgotten the gifts of the grace of God that he's given us in its leaders and in its functions in our lives. You've forsaken the sweetness of fellowship, the remembrance that is found in communion, and the significance of the waters of baptism. You have perhaps, in great degree, forgotten the value of the local church in your life. And you thought, well... My faith seems fine. My life seems to be going okay, even though I don't know anything but on Zoom calls. But you've forsaken the fellowship of the saints and you've forfeited the benefits and the blessings of the local church in the season. 
I'm not here to scold you about shooting. I'm not. I'm really not. But I believe the book of Titus is God's ordained wake-up call for our ministry, the people here, to focus our hearts again, afresh, on our need for the local church. The fact that there is nothing in this whole world that will replace gathering with the saints, singing, opening God's word, taking communion together, baptizing believers. I believe our study in Titus will help us reinvigorate that love for the local church. We see in Titus that Paul's task for Titus in 1 verse 5 is so that you might put what remained in the order and appoint elders in every town, as I, Paul, directed you, Titus. And we see that in the book of Titus, as is Titus's task, we see the order and the leadership of the local church in chapter 1. We see the importance of that leadership. In chapter 2, we see the character of the individual in the local church. In chapter 3, we see the gospel witness of the local church in the world. And as we see these things, I believe we will be encouraged, we will be challenged, we will be stirred up in our love for the local church. You will not be at GOC forever. It's a great idea. Even David Chow will not be at GOC it's not a matter of if, it's when you leave GOC. You would do well now to build a foundation in your heart for a lifetime of love and commitment and humility in light of the local church. Before you enter nine years of the most intense schooling you've ever experienced, or you live in a place where your church is 40 minutes away. Or you go to a church where discipleship is not small groups, it's flock groups. Or the preaching isn't what you're used to. Let's use our study of Titus to reinvigorate our love for the local church now. And by God's grace, our study will reap benefits next week, next year, or 50 years from now for our love for the local church. Reason number three we need to study Titus, I believe, is we need to reaffirm our understanding of church leadership. We need to reaffirm our understanding of church leadership. A recent New York Times article called The Empty Religions of Instagram captures the reality that our tendency is to turn to Instagram, Twitter, or Reddit, even TikTok, to do two things. Number one, to feed or affirm or find empathy about our cynicism about the world around us. We want to commiserate a little bit, people online. And number two, we go to these things to not just feed our cynicism, but to shape our ways of thinking or of coping, or of identifying with this fallen reality. This is the habit of ours, to turn to social media. It's our digital version of reality. Although it's all algorithmically crafted. 
And this lends an incredible amount of authority in your life to whatever we find visually appealing, or whomever we find most clever and compelling, or whatever makes us feel most okay about ourselves and the things that we see in the world. Whether it's Gary Vee, or Chrissy Teigen, or Joe Rogan, or Robbie Daskal, or David Portnoy, or Meghan Markle, these voices are guiding us in what to believe, or how to invest our money, or how hard to grind, or how to vote, or how to, how to spend your spending. We are guided way too easily by these pseudo-spiritual voices on the internet. You're distracted from real life and real friendship and real critical thinking by the authority of our phones. We're being led in our thinking by these people. We're being we're being pastored. We're being shepherded by these people. And on top of all that, in the past few years, high-profile pastor after high-profile pastor has fallen into grievous sin or committed suicide or self-destructed on Twitter and denied faith. And on the internet where we all live, there's high-profile pastors that fall, and then there's false teachers. False teachers abound to the point that the, the bearded dude with the false teacher microphone and the Balenciagas and the watch brand you can't, you can't even pronounce, he's just a meme now. We are exposed to so much failure and so much mock-worthy fodder on the internet that we have a rightfully bleak picture of spiritual leadership. It's pitiful. It's laughable. And it's discouraging all at the same time. It's only fitting that our expectations of church leaders have been marginalized or have been trivialized. But we're, if we can admit it, pessimistic about church leaders. We have a low regard for these kinds of people. Let me be straight with you. For a lot of you, you might not fall into any of these two categories, finding authority on the phones or being pessimistic about them, from what you see on the internet. You spent, though, the last year carefully crafting, closely guarding, of course, telling maybe some of your friends your 95 theses of criticism and disrespect about spiritual leaders in your life. For the things they've said from the pulpit, for the stands they've taken, things that you, of course, would never. You've been critical. You've disagreed with their viewpoints or their assessment of the world, and your response, your vitriol for these leaders, only shown that what you expect of spiritual leaders is not what God expects of spiritual leaders. You've expected perfection and balance on every issue and flawless consideration of others, all of course from your point of view. Your standard, like that of the Pharisees, has superseded the divine standard. You need to learn now, and I need to learn now, that for the rest of your life, Leaders in the local church will only be as helpful to your spiritual life as you allow these men to be. Adulthood can be extremely isolating. And if you develop a, a perpetual stiff arm, a snake eye, a cold shoulder to spiritual leaders 
in your life, you will be a spiritual lone wolf. You won't receive the correction. You won't be helped like you should. You won't be challenged and encouraged like you could. But if you learn to desire the leadership and accountability and the care of spiritual leaders in your life, and you invite it, and you honor it, and you respect it, these men will be a tremendous help. They will be a means of God's grace in your life. In trial, and in counsel, and in rebuke, and in restoration, and in encouragement. My prayer is that our study in Titus will humble us. That it will help us to see that the standard that God sets for leaders in the church is not perfection. It's not personality. It's not charisma. It's godly character. It's godly character and inability to teach and inability to refute error. It's simple. God calls humble, gifted, godly men who teach God's word and have the tenacity to defend the truth. And as they lead us and they navigate these shark-infested waters of a culture, we ought to extend them much grace. We have to show them the honor that God calls us to show them. And be humble that God would give us these gifts of grace in the form of imperfect yet qualified men, men of God. So my hope is this study in Titus will help us to re-examine our understanding of church leadership. Number four, the reason why why we need to study Titus is we need to re-examine our pursuit of godly character. We need to re-examine our pursuit of godly character. In many ways, this is the most formative time in your life. For forming habits and growing character and forming convictions that will last you the rest of your life. No, it sounds typical, but it's true. When you just get even just a little bit older, you will be just a little bit more stubborn. Okay, a lot more stubborn. You will be less less open to input. You're going to be a whole lot more opinionated. I mean, I can tell you. You, right now, you are malleable. You are, if you want to be, if you choose to be, are teachable in this season. You can grow in ways that you won't want to and you can't even in 10 years. You can do that now. Your growth in godliness is crucial now. If you can set the trajectory, the path, the direction of your spiritual growth now you will be setting the groundwork for a lifetime of growing in the Lord. Now, you may, if you're like most people around you, you may think of godliness as things that someone does or doesn't do. You think of the things on the surface, the externals. You think of the way that someone talks or doesn't talk at all. Think of the ministry team that may seem to do more important, more godly stuff from up front. 
or the small group where all the dudes or the girls are more godly because they meet for a really long time. Stop meeting for a really long time. Or whether someone shows up to the ministry meeting or the prayer meeting that all the godly people go to. We so often in our godliness make a beeline straight toward doing, following rules, actions, externals. And if you tend to perceive, what might I say, judge, or be disciple maybe in this way, our study in Titus will help you re-examine your pursuit of godliness. And it might very well flip your perception of godliness on its head. Titus talks a lot about godliness. And in Titus, the core of godliness is character. Godly character. Godliness in Titus is everyday not so flashy, often unnoticed devotion to God. It's rooted in your faith. It's built up by your knowledge of the truth, and it's grown into godliness, godly character. Titus will show us that spiritual growth is firstly about growth in godly character. It's not fundamentally about what you do. It's about who you are what your character is. Godliness is not necessarily about how much you know about the Bible. It's not necessarily about how much you know about theology. It's not about how profound your blog posts are. It's not about how well-spoken you are from up front. It's not about how well you've learned to follow your small group leader or your staffer's practical wisdom. It's not about being the perfect counterbalance to all the imbalances you see in GFC culture. It's not about what ministry team you're on or how many you're on. It's not about who you meet up with. It's not about how nicely you dress on Sunday. It's not even about how godly people think you are. Godliness, according to God's word in Titus, is instead about godly character flowing out from saving faith. Godliness is sound doctrine amplified through sound living, anchored in sound character. Godliness is rooted in the doctrine of God, the gospel, but is sustained and driven by the God of all grace, not ourselves, not by our own doing. It's tender. Godliness is humble. It's self-concerned, but it's others-focused. I just show us that godliness is not primarily what you do, but it's who you are. And out of who you are will flow what you do. What I love about Titus is that he has a word for everyone. Older men and older women. Younger women and younger men. Aspiring church leaders. Workers. I believe Titus will challenge our view of discipleship. Titus 2 is classic discipleship. And Titus will help us become better disciples, better small group members. It will show us that our pursuit of godly character must be in community. It must be with each other. It must involve other people. 
And if we understand that discipleship is growing together in godly character, our discipleship will be transformed. We'll see discipleship isn't just spouting off wisdom before it listens and before it asks questions. Discipleship isn't heavy-handed or overly opinionated. It's founded on a love for others around you that does not insist on its own way or its own style or its own approach. Discipleship isn't judgy or critical. It's instead supportive, uplifting, helpful. It doesn't cause others to be more like you. It causes others to be more like Christ. Discipleship in Titus will be patient because it understands character takes time. Because godliness flows from the inside out. Titus-like discipleship has the heart of humility that is able to say to the person you're meeting with, the person you're discipling, by God's grace and power, you will be a better Discipler, a more mature Christian, a better spouse, a parent I will ever be, young person, in front of me. Because of the way that God has gifted you. And I can't wait to see how God grows you in God and character. Discipleship has that kind of humility, I would say that. And just one specific area that Titus will show us. I can't help myself. This is. This is godly character area. This is something that's really hitting this week. Against the Cretan culture Paul's addressing, Paul says five times in the short letter. Five times. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. It is so fitting a word for Cretans, but also for Brewers, for Los Angelinos. How many areas in our lives would be helped if we were characterized by self-control? And that's just a taste of what Titus has for us as we seek to grow in godliness, in godly character. Our study in Titus will help us to re-examine this pursuit of godliness, whether we are actually growing humbly in, in character or if we're just getting really good at jumping through hoops or learning how to say the right things or puffing ourselves up with knowledge. And Titus will help us to dial our compass toward pursuing godly character. That we would indeed have lives transformed from the inside out. Lastly, Reason number five for why we need to study Titus is we need to revive our gospel witness. We need to revive our gospel witness. We're finally getting back. It's hard to believe. Lord willing, in person classes begin in the fall. We're eating in restaurants. We're in a place where we're finally able to invite some of the church. It's not a URL. Got a link. If you're eating poke and you're getting boba just fine, you have ample reason in this season to give attention to your gospel witness. One of the big, big, biggest missing pieces, I think, of this past year and a half or so has been that 
Our gospel witness has been relegated simply to whether you wear a mask or not, as if the gospel has lost its words. Grace on campus, we must revive our gospel witness in our lives and on campus and in our everyday lives. We must, like Paul does in Titus, consider how our lives are or are not a display of saving faith. And we must let the grace of God train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We must be motivated by gospel truth to then be a gospel witness. Chapter 3 of the book of Titus will help us to, to consider what it means to be the church under the microscope of a watching world. And what it means to cultivate a, a tangible gospel witness as you go back to campus or to the new medical school or the new workplace, or the lab, or the internship, my prayer is that Titus is an impetus in reviving our gospel witness. Listen to Titus 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. How is this kind of life that is devoted to good works for God excellent and profitable for people? First and foremost, and primarily, as a gospel witness, you can be an excellent and profitable gospel witness simply by the way that you live what you believe. Titus shows that to be a gospel witness in this self-righteous, virtue-signaling culture isn't necessarily to talk more loudly or more astutely or more logically in a Ben Shapiro kind of way to convince everyone to believe what you believe. Being a gospel witness in the book of Titus, more often than not, is being a humble, everyday signpost for Jesus. God does not need cheerleaders or superstars or vicious defenders on Twitter. He needs humble kingdom representatives who are captivated by the beauty of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus, in the most plain, perhaps unimpressive way, will show us that to revive our gospel is to revive our appreciation for the gospel, is to revive our love for the local church, for its leaders. It's to revive our pursuit of godly character and then to live a modest, a meek life of mere worship to God. Faithfully. Every day. Devoting ourselves to good works that adorn the doctrine of God. So these are five reasons why I'm excited to study Titus with you. Number one, we need to refresh ourselves in the gospel. Number two, we need to reinvigorate our love for the local church. Number three, we need to reaffirm our understanding of church leadership. Number four, we need to re-examine our pursuit of godly character. And number five, we need to revive our gospel witness. May God help us in this study, this quarter, as we dive into the book of 
titles together. I challenge you every week this quarter, would you take six minutes once a week to just read the book cover to cover? Beginning of one page to the next. And pray that God would aid our study, help us to humbly learn these things afresh, these doctrines and these truths and this practical wisdom that we would adorn the doctrine of God together as a Bible study. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Titus. We are excited. We're excited to study it because we're excited that you have something for us in 900 words that you would show us how we ought to live a Christian life. We're just by your grace that has appeared in the form of Jesus Christ as the man, the ultimate God man, your son, that saves us, but Lord also compels us to live a life worthy of the gospel. So Lord, work in this study, work in our hearts, and by your spirit we ask change and growth in godliness. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.